Shalom and welcome to The Jewish Mind, where the growth of modernity meets timeless wisdom and solutions of Judaism. This teaching is one of the most revolutionary teachings of Hasidus. How so? The Talmud tells an interesting story. I quote the Talmud, it's in Tractic Baba Basra, page 10, side B. A similar remark was made by Joseph, the son of Rabbi Yeshua. He had been ill and fell in a trance. After he recovered, his father said to him, What vision did you have? He replied, I saw a world upside down, the upper below and the lower above. He said to him, meaning the father responded to the son, You saw a well-regulated world. In the teaching of Hasidus, this story reveals to us that the way in which the physical world descends from its spiritual source is in a flip manner. This means that all which is higher in the spiritual worlds fall lower in the physical worlds, while all that is lower in the spiritual worlds become the higher elements of the physical world. For example, Hasidus explains the mystical reversal of the food chain in this manner. Spiritually speaking, the lower live off the higher and not in the reverse. Yet the food chain works in the reverse, where the human lives off the animal, which lives off the plant, which lives off the inanimate earth. However, the secret of Joseph, the son of Rabbi Yeshua's dream, reveals to us why it is so. In Genesis, all the living creatures were brought forth from the earth because the highest power of creating ex nihilo, something out of nothing, lies within the inanimate earth. And thus, King Solomon says, and all come from the dust. Therefore, while when you look at the physical world, the food chain seems to be working in the reverse, however, when you look at the food chain as it is in its spiritual source, the food chain makes Kabbalistic sense. Now that we understand that the physical world has descended from the spiritual world in a flip manner. As revolutionary as this teaching of the flip manner existence in which the upper below and the lower above may be, it takes a quantum leap when we bring it into the soul-body relationship. Can it be that in essence the body is greater than the soul? Is the soul really meant to live off the body rather than the body living off the soul? And that is exactly what this teaching is going to tell us. As a matter of fact, Hasidus tells us that this truism of the body being higher than the soul is the reason why the soul lives its spiritual paradise in heaven above and descends into this nether physical world in order to clothe itself within a body. We are about to witness a total revolution as Hasidus takes the Talmudic story to be speaking of not only how the hierarchy of the elements within the physical world are the flip manner of the hierarchy of elements within the spiritual world, rather the very existence of the spiritual and the physical worlds 
in themselves are infinite matter, where in truth the physical comes from a higher source than the spiritual. The secret behind this, as you will soon see, is that the spiritual comes from the infinite light of God, while the physical comes from the essence of God. Thus, yes, it is absolutely so that the body is higher than the soul, and it is true that when Mashiach comes and all the curtains upon creation will be lifted, the soul will live off the body. This is the secret of the resurrection, when there will be a mass exodus of souls out of the Garden of Eden, and the souls will return to their bodies to receive from the physical body what it cannot have on its spiritual own. Now that I let the cat out of the bag, let us explore this Hasidic teaching in its mystical, orderly fashion. There was a time when it was forbidden by death penalty for the Jewish people to publicly read from the five books of Moses. The sages then instituted, in the place of the weekly Torah reading on Shabbat, a reading from the books of the prophets or scriptures should take place. The sages selected portions with similar themes to what should have been that week's Torah portion. For example, on the week that they should have read the Torah portion of the Jewish people building the tabernacle in the desert, they read the portion from the Book of Kings in which King Solomon built the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. The exception to this pattern was when that Shabbat was a holiday or some other special event of the year, on such a Shabbat, the reading was about the holiday or the event of that Shabbat. After the prohibition against the Jewish people reading the five books of Moses was lifted, the Jewish people did not want to give up the portions of the books of their prophets or scriptures that spiritually sustained them throughout the prohibition. So they now read both the Torah portion from the five books of Moses and the half Torah portion of the books of the prophets or the scriptures. The way this works is that the Torah portion of the week is read in seven readings. The readings are called Aliyot, after which an eighth person is called up and the last verses of the Torah portion is reread. The Torah is then lifted and placed within its mantle and the eighth person then reads the half Torah portion from a printed book. The reason that I, am, that I am telling you all of this is because this Shabbat is Erev Rosh Chodesh, which means that it is the day before Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh is the first day of a Jewish calendar month. Shabbat is Erev Rosh Chodesh, the day before Rosh Chodesh. On such a Shabbat, we read a special Haftorah portion from the book of Samuel, upon which our mystical teaching is built upon. Now, simply speaking, when you read the story in the book of Samuel, there is absolutely no connection between this special Haftorah reading and the day before Rosh Chodesh, other than that the, story, that, that the story happened to take place on the day before Rosh Chodesh. Hasidus, however, reveals to us that the entire story, with all its details, is precisely what the mystical dimension of the day before Shchodesh is truly all about. Here's the story. King Saul was told by Samuel the prophet 
that because he had failed to correctly fulfill the commandment of God to annihilate the Amalekites, King Saul would therefore lose his kingdom to someone else. This meant that while King Saul would remain king of the Jewish people throughout his lifetime, however, his monarchy would not be succeeded by his son, King it would rather be succeeded by someone else. King Saul saw the signs that his kingdom would instead be succeeded by his son, son-in-law, I'm sorry, by his son-in-law, David. This started the bitter battle of King Saul against David, in which King Saul wanted to kill David. Our Torah reading for the day before Shchodesh is about how Jonathan, the son of King Saul, sets a plan through which Jonathan and David could verify for certain whether King Saul planned on killing David or not. And if it was certain, then the plan provided for David to safely run away. Here is the plan as it is stated in the book of Samuel. And Jonathan said to him, him means David, Tomorrow is the new moon, Rosh Chodesh, and you will be remembered, for your seat will be vacant. And for three days you shall hide very well, and you shall come to the place where you hid on the day of work, and you shall stay beside the traveler's stone. And I shall shoot three arrows to the side, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I shall send the youth, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the youth, Behold, the arrows are on this side of you, take it and come, for all, for it is well with you. And there is nothing the matter, as the Lord lives. That means Jonathan is swearing not to trick King David. But if I say thus to the oath, Behold, the arrows are beyond you, go, for the Lord has sent you away. And concerning the matter which we have spoken, that means the covenant that Jonathan and David made to always be friends, I and you, behold, the Lord is between me and you forever. So, simply speaking, the reason why we read this Haftorah is because the opening verse tells us that the story took place on, quote, Tomorrow is the new moon, which means the day of Erez Rosh Chodesh. Now let us understand how this story, with all its details, is precisely what the day before Rosh Chodesh mystically is all about. According to Kabbalah, David represents the seventh emotion, which is the tenth of the ten emanations called Malchut, kingship. Now in Kabbalah and in Hasidus, kingship is a receiver, which has nothing of its own, and instead receives from the giver, and then transmits it to the realm beneath it. This is why kingship is the tenth and final of the ten emanations. For its purpose is to receive the divine light from the higher nine emanations and to then transmit it in a digestible and sustainable fashion to the world beneath it. This is also why Kabbalah teaches us that kingship of the higher world becomes the crown of the lower world. Through this concept, Hasidus explains a teaching of our sages about David. 
Our sages say that Adam was meant to live a thousand years instead of the 930 years that Adam actually lived. The reason why he lived only for 930 years, according to our sages, is because when Adam saw that King David was to be born a stillborn, Adam gave David 70 years of his own life. Hasidus explains that the reason that David's life had to come about in this way is because King David is kingship and kingship, the ultimate receiver, has absolutely nothing of his own, even his very own life. Thus, David had to receive his lifetime, his 70 years of life, through it being given to him by Adam. Let's go back now to our Haftorah story. So if kingship is the receiver, then who is the giver? Kingship, the receiver, is the seventh emotion, and the giver is the small faces. That's a Kabbalistic term, which actually means it is the first six emotions. So kingship is the seventh emotion, small faces are the first six emotions, and small faces are the giver to kingship. This is why in the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidis, we refer to the small faces as the husband, kingship as the wife, and when they consummate, which is the transmission from small faces to kingship, there are the offspring. The offspring is the creation of sustenance for the lower worlds. So, let's go back to our question. If King David is kingship, the receiver, then who in the Haftorah story is the giver? To understand this, we need to take this teaching up a notch in the hierarchy of the Ten Emanations. Within the global picture of the Ten Emanations, the small faces and kingship are the sons and the daughter of the father and mother. The father is wisdom, the mother is understanding. The emanation of understanding is called a happy mother of sons. King Saul, according to Kabbalah, is the emanation of understanding. And thus, ultimately, King Saul is the giver of David, who is the receiver. Now, just understand how this works. King Saul is the mother of the sons, who are the giver of David, who is the kingship, the receiver. Wow! How this entire story is changing before our eyes. King Saul, mystically speaking, isn't trying to kill David. Actually, he is the giver of David. I will explore this change of perspective in the story in my personal closing statement at the end of this lecture. Now, let us bring this Haftorah story of King Saul, Jonathan, and David to the mystical secrets of the day before Rosh Chodesh. The moon represents kingship and has no illumination of its own. However, God clearly states in Genesis that the moon's job is to illuminate the night. How can it be if the moon has no light? The answer is that while the moon has no light of, light of its own, nevertheless, the moon receives its light from the sun, which the moon then reflects upon the earth. Thus, in Kabbalah, the sun 
represents the small faces. The moon represents kingship. And the 15th day of the lunar month represents the full consummation between the sun and the moon when there is a full moon illuminating the night. However, it is important to note that the quality of kingship that allows for it to be a receiver is humility. It is only because of kingship's total humility and transparency of self that allows for it, the receiver, to receive from the giver. Without the humility and total transparency of self, the self of the receiver would not allow it to receive from the giver. Even more so, it is precisely the humility and transparency of the receiver to the giver that arouses the giver to give the receiver. This is why throughout all of Kabbalah and Hasidus, the primary quality of holiness is humility and transparency of self, which allows the holy ones to unite with divinity, arouse divinity to give, and for those holy ones to receive from divinity. This is what the day before Shchodesh stands for. Rosh is the day that the consummation between the moon and the sun begins. The day before Rosh is the day of the month in which the moon is reduced to the smallest sliver of light, to the point that right before the actual birth of the new moon, which is Rosh the moon completely disappears with absolutely no illumination at all. The day before Rosh is the moment of the moon's total humility and transparency of self. Now, let's return to the Haftorah story. This is the mystical meaning behind the words of Jonathan to David. I quote, And you will be remembered, for your seat will be vacant. Myst mystically, this means that the reason why David, which is kingship, the moon, will be remembered by the giver, which is King Saul, is precisely because David's seat will be vacant. Vacant means total humility and transparency of self. As we explain things so far, King Saul is the giver, being that he is the emanation of understanding, the happy mother of sons. In truth, however, the total humility and transparency of self of kingship, the receiver, actually opens kingship up to receive even higher than from the emanation of understanding. Rather, kingship receives from the source of the source of the source, which is the supernal crown. So in essence, the total vacancy of ego, of self-identity, of kingship, has the small faces received from the emanation of understanding, which receives from the supernal crown. And this, from the supernal crown, the divine light from the essence of the supernal crown, is what kingship receives, all thanks to the day before Rosh Chodesh, in which kingship diminishes itself to absolute humility and to absolute transparency of self. This is the mystical meaning behind the verse. 
King Solomon says, Go out, O daughters of Zion, and gaze upon King Solomon, upon the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his nuptials and on the day of the joy of his heart. Simply speaking, King Solomon's mother, Bacheva, actually made a beautiful crown and crowned King Solomon upon the day that he got married. That's simply speaking. Mystically speaking, King Solomon is kingship. The day of his nuptials is the day of his consummation with the small faces and receives from the giver. His mother is the emanation of understanding and the crown which his mother crowned him is the supernal crown. Thus, once again we see how the Rosh day of consummation between the sun and the moon, kingship, ultimately receives from the supernal crown through the emanation of understanding which comes through the emanations of the small faces. And this is all possible only because of the moon's total humility and transparency of self on the day before Rosh Chodesh. Thus the story of the Torah for our Shabbat that is the day before Rosh Chodesh is precisely the mystical secret of what is taking place on the day before Rosh Chodesh where kingship, David, moon, is being remembered precisely because his seat is vacant. Humility, transparency. All seems picture perfect already. However, Hasidus sees yet an even deeper perfection to this Haftorah story. The way the Torah is being presently explained, Jonathan's words to David, again let's quote the verse, and you will be remembered for your seat will be vacant. These words seems to be a side detail of kingship's humility being the reason for the giver to give to kingship. However, not so. The very unique wording of the verse leans to something far deeper than this. The wording of the verse seems to be saying that within the vacancy itself lies the remembering and not that the vacancy is just a reason for the remembering. Wow! However, to understand this we will have to first deal with another question on the mystical meaning of this Haftorah story. So, the question that we're laying down before us right now practically is that even though it seems to be that the vacancy, i.e. the humility, is only a reason which arouses King Saul, the giver, to give to David kingship, the receiver. However, precisely the words are saying that not only is vacancy a reason, an arousal for the remembering, rather hidden within the vacancy itself is the remembering. However, as I just said, in order to understand this, we're first going to have to divert to another question of the Haftorah story. Who is Jonathan in the mystical story? We have David being kingship, King Saul representing the small faces through being their mother, the emanation of understanding. And we have kingship being remembered by the giver through his place being humbly vacant. All that we got. 
However, who is Jonathan? And what does his talking to David represent? In Hebrew, the spelling of the name Jonathan, which is actually pronounced as Yonatan or Ashkenazic Yonasan, is Yud. The letters are Yud, He, Vav, Nun, Saf, Sephardic pronunciation, Taf, and Nun. So we have six letters here that make up the word. The Yud, the He, the Vav, the Nun, the Saf, and the Nun. Now the first three letters of the name are the first three letters of God's ineffable tetragrammaton name. The Yud, the He, and the Vav. On the last three letters of the name, there are two mystical interpretations. Ter one simply reads the three letters like a word. Nun, Saf, or Taf, Nun is Natan, Nasan, which means give. Now we understand what Jonathan's talking to David mystically means. Jonathan, which is the small faces, the son of King Saul, which is the emanation of understanding, so Jonathan is the small faces, is giving Natan. He is giving the divine lights of the higher nine emanations. The higher nine emanations are represented in the first three letters of his name, which is the yud Hey vav the first three letters of God's name. So yud Hey vav natan Yonatan is the small faces which is actually giving the divine lights, the Natan of the yud Hey vav to David, which is kingship, the fourth and last letter of God's name. The name Yehonasan means, according to this interpretation, that Jonathan is Natan giving the Yud, He, and Vav of God's name to David. However, the second interpretation of the last three letters of the name Yonatan leaves us needing to revisit our Haftorah story. So what is the second interpretation? The second interpretation is that the numerical value of the last three letters of the name Yehonatan, which is Nun equals 50, Saf or Taf equals 400, and again Nun equals 50, which is the sum total of 500, which is the fourth and last letter of God's name, the letter He, which is 5, times 100. According to the Kabbalistic teachings within a book called Me'ore Or, that's a famous Kabbalistic book, when he talks about the name of Jonathan, he explains that Jonathan is the last letter of God's name, which is kingship. Whoa, what is the story here then? Jonathan kingship is talking, i.e. giving, transmitting, to David kingship? David and Jonathan are both mystically one and the same. They are both kingship. What's going on here? Being that kingship's job is to first receive from all the higher nine emanations of its world and then to transmit it to the lower world, therefore the emanation of kingship has two dimensions. This is why in the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidis, kingship is represented as both the sea and the earth, two dimensions, of kingship. When kingship is in its higher world receiving all the divine lights from the higher nine emanations of the higher world, it is called sea. Why is it a sea? As the verse states, all the rivers flow into the sea. All the divine lights of the higher world flow into kingship, the sea. 
In kingship, the dimension of C, it absorbs all the higher divine lights within it and it conceals within itself these higher divine lights, just as the sea covers and hides all that is in it. Now through this concealment, kingship the sea can then provide to kingship the land a weaker divine light that can descend and sustain the lower world. Now the lower world cannot live off the divine lights of the higher world as they are. Rather, the kingship, the sea, has to first go ahead and absorb it, conceal it, give out a weaker light. Now, when kingship lowers itself outside of its own higher world and descends to become the provider of the lower world, it is called kingship the land. This is the mystical interpretation to the teaching of our sages in ethics of our father. Let me first tell you the whole teaching. It says, be a tail to lions rather than a head to foxes. Now let's see what this mystically means. Be a tail to lions. This is kingship to see, tail of the higher world. Rather than a head to foxes, this is kingship to land, head of the lower world. Now we can appreciate who Jonathan, kingship the sea, is and why Jonathan is talking to David, who is kingship the land, according to the second interpretation. Jonathan's talking to David is the same mystical concept of the splitting of the sea, in which the sea transformed to land. Hafach yam layabasha, the sea transformed to land. Why? in order for the land creatures, the Jewish people, the physical people, to be able to receive the higher sea dimension of divine light before they would receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. So too, by Jonathan talking to David, Jonathan was overcoming kingship the sea's concealment process upon the divine lights of the higher world, so that Jonathan can then transmit the higher lights as they are in the higher world unconcealed to David who is kingship the land and the source of sustenance to the lower world Wow now we're having here a very beautiful picture what we're seeing here is that by Jonathan talking to David he is changing the entire consummation that takes place between, between kingship the sea and kingship the land. Regularly speaking, kingship the sea has to absorb the higher lights, conceal it, and give out to kingship the land only a weaker light. However, by Jonathan going to King David, talking to him, planning, what he's actually doing is he's bypassing the concealment process, really empowering King David to the umpth degree that the kingship of the land should have within him the higher unconcealed divine lights of kingship the sea. With this, we can now also understand Jonathan's directions to David. Let's quote the directions again. And for three days you shall hide very well, and you shall come to the place where you hid on the day of the work, and you shall stay beside the traveler's stone, 
and I shall shoot three arrows, etc. Let's see what's going on here. Jonathan, kingship, the sea of the higher world of Atsilut. That's the name of the higher world, which really means godliness. Is telling David, kingship the land, source of the lower worlds, to descend into the three lower worlds. That's what it means when he says, for three days you shall hide and you shall go to the place of work. The three lower worlds are called creation, formation, and action. Now, why is Jonathan telling King David to go high, descend into the three lower worlds? Here's why. And to refine and elevate all the falling godly sparks within the three lower worlds. Jonathan told David that through his hiding for three days, which means ascending into the three lower worlds to do the refinement, elevation, and transformation work there, David will reach the even higher three arrows in which kingship has the deepest source within the essence of the supernal crown. So now we're starting to understand the three lower worlds is the three days of hiding in the place of work. Through that, King David will merit and open himself up to the three arrows, which are the even higher light than the three faces, than the emanation of understanding. We're talking here about the three arrows being the essence of the supernal crown. Now let me share with you how this works, simply speaking. In the Hebrew vowels, there is a vowel made up of three dots, two on, two on top and one under the two dots. This vowel is called segel, and it makes the eh sound and goes beneath the letter. So, for example, the word eretz, under the aleph of eh and under the resh of re, eretz, there's the eh sound, eretz. So, under those letters, they will, each of them will have the segel vowel, which is three dots that looks like a triangle, two dots on top and one dot in the middle on bottom. Now, in the musical notes used for reading the Torah from the Torah scroll, there is a musical note that has three dots, only that the two dots has the one dot on top of it. The musical note goes on top of the letter, and it is called segulta. The segel vowel on the bottom of the letter represents kingship the land as it descends into the three lower worlds to do its work there, which then connects kingship the land to the segulta musical note on top of the letter, which is the supernal crown. According to the mystical interpretations on the directions that Jonathan was giving David, the three days of hiding represents the segel, in which David, kingship the land, must descend below the leather into the three lower worlds to do his work, through which David will then receive and connect with the three arrows, which represents the segulta, which is on top of the letter, which is the essence divine light of the supernal crown. Thus, in essence, Jonathan's two statements to David carry the same message. Only that in the second message, Jonathan is being more specific. Let's see. The first message is, I quote, And you will be remembered, for your seat will be vacant. Which means that through the vacancy, the humility, which we now understand means specifically 
the humility of descending into the lower three worlds to work the refinement, elevation, and transformation process. Through that humility of the seat being vacant, David will be remembered, which means that kingship will receive from the ultimate source, which is the essence of the supernal crown. This, we now know, is the very same message as the second half. And for three days you shall hide very well, and you shall come to the place where you hid on that day of work, and I shall shoot three arrows, etc. Only that the second message is clearly telling David the specifics of the process. Go down into the three lower worlds. Do your work there. Engage with the segel beneath the letter. And through that, you will connect to the three arrows, the segulta, the essence of the supernal crown, on top of the letter. With all these introductions in place, we can now appreciate that like in the arch of every good story, so too there are three parts to the arch of a Haftorah story. In writing classes, you learn that a good story has to have three arches. This Haftorah story is beautifully set up Kabbalistically with three arches. Arch 1. And Jonathan said to him, part 1 of the arch, and Jonathan said to him, which is David, This is Jonathan giving empowerment to David, kingship, for David's descent and for David's work in the three lower worlds. Remember how we spoke about how kingship, the sea, is bypassing the concealment process by Jonathan talking to David, kingship, the land? That's the first part of the arch of the story. The second part of the arch of the story. For your seat will be vacant. This is the actual descent and work of King David's refining and transforming the three lower worlds. Part 3 of the Arch of the Story, and you will be remembered. This is the ascent of the greater divine light, which is the essence divine light of the supernal crown. This ascent happens only after King David's humility, which is the descent and refinement of the three lower worlds. Now that you understand that there are three parts to the arch of the story, now watch what happens. The first three months after the Jewish people left Egypt are all referred to as three parts of the exodus of Egypt. In the first month of Nisan, they actually left Egypt. In the second month of Iyar, they were refining and preparing themselves to receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. And in the third month of Sivan, is when they actually receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. Now receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai is the fulfillment of the exodus from Egypt. As God told Moses at the burning bush that God has taken the Jewish people out of Egypt in order that they will serve me at this mountain of Sinai. So it is actually three parts of the story. In essence, these three months as they are the three parts of the arch of the story of the exit of Egypt, are actually the three parts of the arch of our Haftorah story. Let's see how. The month of Nisan is part one. It is the month of the actual exodus of Egypt, which came from above, just as Jonathan speaking to David was the empowerment for David from above. Part two of the story, the month of Iyar is the month of self-refinement. This is just as your seat will be vacant, 
which is the actual descent, working and refining of the three lower worlds. Now, on a personal and individual level, the three lower worlds are also seen as the person's egocentric intellects, emotions, and garments. The garments of the soul is thought, speech, and action. So here, when we talk about the three lower worlds, we're actually talking about on an individual, personal relationship. We're talking about the person's egocentric, driven intellect, emotions, and garments of the body and its animalistic soul. This is the month of Iyar. This is part two of the story where David's seat is vacant because he descends humbly to work the lower worlds. Now here goes part three of the story, the month of Sivan, which is the month in which God himself descended upon Mount Sinai and gave us the Torah beginning with giving us the words, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am Lord your God. I am Lord your God represents the essence, the I of the supernal crown. Now this month of Sivan in which God gave us the Torah and gave us the I am Lord your God is just as the part of the story which says, and you will be remembered. This month is us receiving the ultimate source of the essence which comes but specifically through the humble vacancy and humble descent of our working and refining the three lower worlds, which also represents the body and its egocentric perceptions and emotions. So, what is important for us to understand here, before we move forward and see how this all reflects in the soul and the body, is that the ultimate ascent is experienced not in the higher lights of the nine emanations of the intellect or of the six emotions, the small faces. Rather, the highest ascent is specifically experienced in kingship and specifically so only when kingship humbly descends to work the refinement process of the three lower worlds. Keep that important concept in mind as we now take all these spiritual emanations and make it practical to us. To us, the higher spirituality and its descent into the lower physicality is all talking about our soul, our body, and how our soul descends into this world, into its body, in order to refine its body and the physical possessions and environment of its body. Let's see how this works. The soul in the Garden of Eden, with all its spiritual bliss, is all about the higher spirituality of the soul, as the soul basks within its higher perception and its higher emotions for God. However, the soul senses that its own relationship with God is limited by its own spiritual capacity, which comes from the infinite light of God. Let's see how this works. The soul being holy and spiritual in its own right lacks in its total humility and transparency of self. And therefore, it gets in the way of being the ultimate receiver from above. Now the body, on the other hand, knowing that in its own right the body is a being of darkness and coarseness, the body accepts that ultimately it must become totally humble and absolutely transparent to divinity. This deep recognition 
of its own darkness and the humility that comes from this recognition of self allows specifically the body to become the ultimate receiver of the essence of the supernal crown. To return to our original metaphor, the soul is as the sun while the body is as the moon. It is the moon's absolute absolute humility and transparency of self which is the day before Rosh Chodesh which allows for specifically and precisely the moon the body to become the ultimate receiver of the essence of the supernal crown now the soul senses that the body has depths of a relationship with God that it the soul does not have this is why the soul descends forcefully into the body forcefully in the sense that it is chasing something that it on its own does not have. Now the depths of the body's relationship with God is expressed in Kabbalah and Hasidis with God freely choosing the body of a Jew with no apparent reason as to any virtue or purpose to the body. Were there to be any logical reason as to why God chose to have a relationship with the body then the relationship would be of the lower category of love which is dependent upon a motive. Seemingly, the case with the soul in which the relationship of God with the soul reveals itself in logical reasoning is a love that is dependent on a motive, which is the soul's virtues and purpose. However, the fact that there is no logical reasons as to why God chose to have a relationship with the body of a Jew tells us that God's relationship with the body is an essence relationship. And this is precisely why the soul descends into the body to attach itself to an essence relationship with God, which is a relationship with God that the soul on its own cannot openly experience. Let us be more specific as to what the soul gains by descending down into the body. The soul's gain and ascent that it receives through the sending and working with the body happens in two ways. Number one, when the soul descends into the darkness of the body's environment and has to deal with the body's egocentric driven desires and fears, and nevertheless, the soul remains faithful, loyal, and focused on its own love and awe for God, this is how the soul reveals and experiences its own infinite and ex eternal oneness with God. It is not going to be kidnapped or sabotaged because its relationship with God is infinite. Thus, by the soul coming into the darkness and the egocentric driven desires and fears of the body, and nevertheless, it remains the loyal soul of God. It is revealing and experiencing its own infinite and eternal oneness with God. Even more so, the fact that the soul not only remains faithful in its own standing with God, but rather this the soul even refines and elevates the body to become a transparent vessel to divinity truly shows the essence power of the soul as she herself is in her essence source one with God. Only because a soul in her own essence source is one with God, therefore does it have the power to transform and turn the darkness of the body into light. So this is all the first gain it has, that it reveals its own deeper 
infinite and eternal oneness with God. Now the second thing that the soul gains by descending into the body, the soul attaches itself to the essence, source and connection of the body. As I mentioned in the opening of the lecture, that the soul is a creature of light and comes from the infinite light of God, while the body is a creature of darkness and can only come from the essence of God. Only by the soul going into the body can the soul attach itself to the revelation of an essence relationship with God. Now the difference between the two ascents and gains that the soul has through its descent into the body is that in the first ascent, the soul doesn't really gain anything new that it didn't have prior. The soul always had an infinite and eternal essence source in God. The soul is called, I quote, truly a piece of God. Only that in order for the soul to reveal its own hidden essence, it had to descend into the dark world of the body and overcome the hostile environment of the body. That's how it reveals what it always had. So the soul didn't get anything new. It only revealed what was hidden within it. However, in the second ascent that the soul achieves through its descent into the body, the soul truly gains something new that it didn't have on its own, which is the open essence, source, connection, and pure chosenness that the body has with God. This is the ultimate reason why the soul descends into the body. This gain that the soul achieves through its descent into the body will reveal itself in the times of Mashiach at the resurrection, in which there will be a mass exodus of souls from the Garden of Eden to return into the body. After the resurrection of all the souls returning to their body is when the soul shall receive its sustenance from the essence, source, connection, and pure chosenness of the body from the body. Yes! When Mashiach comes and it will be the resurrection of all the people who passed away. It's not that the body will be living off the soul. Rather, the soul will leave the Garden of Eden, its spirituality, to come back into the body so that it will receive its life from the essence, chosenness, relationship that the body has with God. Now we understand why it is that even though Mashiach and the final redemption is all about bringing divinity and the knowledge of God into the world, it's all spirituality, and yet nevertheless, we speak with great emphasis of all the physical abundance that we will have when Mashiach comes. The reason for this is that the ultimate oneness and knowledge of God will be experienced through the physical body. And as I quote to you from Isaiah, and all the flesh, the body, the physical, will see that the mouth of the Lord spoke. Now we can return to our question of how the particular wording of the Haftorah verse lends to the heights of David's being remembered, not only coming through the humility of the vacancy of David's seat, which means that the humility of the receiver merely arouses the giver to give the receiver. That's how we first explained it. Now we understand it's much deeper than that. Rather, it is within the receiver himself, within the essence, source, relationship, and pure chosenness 
of the receiver, the body itself, that the greatest essence heights of being remembered, the essence of the supernal crown exists. It is precisely so. My friends, the greatest heights lie in the body and in its physical transformation and not in the soul and the soul's spiritual pursuits. What an amazing transformation of this whole story and what an amazing depth of the Erev Rosh Chodesh. The ultimate essence of the moon doesn't happen on Rosh Chodesh when the sun's light reflects off it. Rather, the absolute beautiful gift of the moon is on the day before Rosh Chodesh, its total darkness in which lies the absolute pure chosenness of God. Thus we understand <coughs> excuse me, that Erev Rosh Chodesh is all about the body of the Jew, simply the physical darkness of the body, which is then greater than the Rosh Chodesh day in which the soul starts shining into the body. For ultimately, the soul receives from the body because ultimately the body has the ultimate relationship and chosenness with God which the soul wants and therefore comes back to the body to receive life from the body. What a revolutionary change in how Jewish people view spiritual and physical, heaven and earth, the soul and the body. The ultimate beauty is not in heaven but in earth, not in spiritual but in physical, not in the soul but in the body. In closing, there are many particular lessons that we can take from this lecture into our personal day-to-day -day lives, into our day-to-day -day paradigms, and into our day-to-day -day relationships. However, one specific lesson speaks out to me the loudest. I want to share with you an amazing metaphor that I heard from the great Mashpia, which means Hasidic mentor, Rabbi Mendel Futtafas of blessed memory, when he was having a Fabrengen, which is a Hasidic gathering with us. I do forewarn you that this metaphor does have a Hasidic spicy flavor to it. Once there was a bird flying in the freezing Siberian winter. The bird succumbed to the freezing weather, fell to the ground, and lay there frozen in the snow, about to die. Suddenly, along came a dog, and not seeing the bird, relieved its bowels right there on top of the bird. The warmth of the dog's excrement brought the bird back to life. In great joy, the bird started singing. However, a fox passed by and heard the singing. The fox, hearing a bird singing coming from the pile of the dog's bodily excrement, started poking around, found the bird, licked it clean, and ate the bird up. Rab Mendel finished by teaching us three lessons from the metaphor. A. Not everyone that puts you through difficulties is killing you. Remember, the dog moving its bowels right onto the bird didn't kill the bird, it saved the bird. B. Not everyone that is cleaning you up is saving you. 
the fox seemed like such a kind fox, it was cleaning the bird up from the dog's excrement. Not so, it actually ate up the bird. And see the third lesson, if you are laying in doo-doo, then don't sing. Look what Hasidus just did to this entire Haftorah story of King Saul and David. The story in its simplest layer is one of the worst relationship stories in the biblical history of the Jewish people. King Saul kept on hunting after David in order to kill him for no wrongdoing of David, but for sensing that David, his own son-in-law, would succeed King Saul instead of his son Jonathan succeeding him. In this obsession of King Saul to King David, to kill David, anyone who helped David hide was killed by King Saul, including an entire city of Kohanim. Kohanim are the priests who served in the holy temple. King Saul wiped out an entire city of Kohanim because they hid King David from him. It is truly a very painful story about a relationship that has gone sour between two of our glorious leaders, King Saul and King David. Now, let's take a look at what Kabbalah and Hasidus is revealing to us about what was really happening in the story. Remember Abendel Futafas' first lesson? Not everyone that puts you through difficulties is killing you. Mm, King Saul was not out to kill King David. There is an interesting book and approach to forgiveness written by Colin Tipping, called Radical Forgiveness. It speaks of the agreement that goes on in the spiritual communications between souls, in how each soul brings to the other soul the exact experience that the other soul needs in order to free itself from a past pain, to grow in the area that the soul must grow, and to reach the destiny that the other soul must reach. Let us take it a step further. Let us do so by beginning with what proves to be the most challenging relationship we ever have to face. My friends, the most challenging relationship that a person faces is a person's relationship with himself, not with the other. Let us perceive the challenges that we face in our relationship with ourselves as the challenge that our soul has with our body. Let us take a very challenging example. The soul cries out, why God? Why do I have to be an addict? Why God did you choose me for such a painful and shameful journey? And yet today we learned that my specific soul descended into my specific body, clothed within all of my body's darkness, precisely because my specific body alone has what to offer my specific soul in offering my soul an unprecedented essence connection with God. Yeah, it isn't a pretty sight when the dog moves its bowels on the bird. But ultimately speaking, that's what saves the bird's life. It isn't pretty when the soul has to face the darkest spiritual sicknesses of the body, of its specific body. However, it is specifically this body specifically the darkest skeletons and secrets of this body that offers this specific soul an unprecedented essence connection with God. Let us then now ponder over our despair and challenges we have with our family of origin. 
Then let us ponder over our specific love relationships, the pains involved. Moving right along to our specific pains and challenges that we have with our relationships with our children. How about our employer, co-worker, neighbor? Let's ponder upon it all. Now, let us clearly realize that as with King Saul and David, what looks to the naked eye as a horrible relationship of trying to destroy each other, it was actually a relationship designed by God to empower, elevate, and beautify each other. That's what each and every one of our relationships are really all about. That is exactly what the pain in our relationships are really all about. Radical forgiveness. The souls that we are in a relationship with, the people we're in a relationship, my soul and my body that is having a relationship. It's really all about bringing to ourselves exactly what we need to revive ourselves and to reach unprecedented spiritual growth, physical inner peace and a chosenness in our relationship with God. Once we realize that this unprecedented gain of ascent is the only reason for our troublesome and painful relationship with self and with others, then we can stop hurting ourselves and we can stop hurting each other and instead we can give this gift of ascent in all our relationships with love, sweetness, respect and with kindness. This is worth repeating. Once we realize that this unprecedented gain of ascent is the only reason for our troublesome and painful relationship with self and with others, then we can stop hurting ourselves and we can stop hurting each other and instead we can give this gift of ascent in all our relationships with love, sweetness, respect and with kindness. Friends, modernity offers growth and growth comes with challenges. Judaism offers timeless divine solution. The Jewish mind is where modernity meets Judaism.